friends, welcome. I'm Andrew Hicks, and you're listening to the Text and Context Podcast. I know that version was just a tad fast, but I promise you the only other version I could find online was ridiculously slow. So given the options, given the options. All right, well, good morning to you. So glad to be here this morning. It's always good to be with God's people. Um, I got to be honest, this is just a confession on my part. And I don't know, I'm still a young preacher. Maybe it's just my inadequacy. I don't know. But I'm going to need help preaching this sermon this morning. And I will need your help preaching this sermon this morning. It's not that difficult. Uh, All you got to do is is say a little phrase when you are so cued to do so. It's pretty easy. All you've got to do is say three little words. I'm asking you to say the words, I am not. I am not. All right, let's let's give that a try. Uh, I'm going to count down and then we'll do it. Ready? One, two, three. I am not. Good. Very good. So uh, you'll actually say it after I say a little phrase before it and then I'll signal you. So it'll go like this. You ready? The I am is, so I am not. Very good. See, you already got this. You've got the hang of it. Not that hard, right? If the I am is, then I am not. Good. Let's go ahead and hit play on track number six of our Pilgrim playlist. This is Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time on and forevermore, hence the song. Verse 3, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, so that the righteous might not stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their own crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace. Be upon Israel. Here we are, but straying pilgrims, we are making our way along. We're at track number six already. Six of 15, though. We've still got a way to go. The the pilgrim path is a long journey. Uh, Many of you have been on this journey and traversing it far longer than I have. So I am preaching to the choir when I say that. But you know that there are certain moments in your pilgrim walk when you come to a critical juncture. There are certain moments at which uh, you have overcome great obstacles. But if you remember all the great stories of history, and in fact, all the great stories in Scripture, it is always after you have overcome great obstacles that you reach your moment of greatest temptation. It is in those moments after, had it not been the Lord who was on our side. That's what we talked about last week. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, who knows what would have happened? It would have been way worse. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it could have been worse. There's a haunted house in every hallelujah is what we talked about last week. And there is. God has brought us to a good place. I I can look around in this room and I know so many of your stories. And I'm sure there's some that I don't even know. And we can say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side. But it's now at this moment that we reach the moment of greatest temptation. Because it's at this point we got to remind ourselves, we have had great victories in our life, but those victories are not a reflection of me or my skill or my worthiness or my accolades, as great as they may be. It's a reflection of the good God we serve. 
Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, had it not been the Lord who was on our side. He wasn't on our side because our side is just the right side and we're just so great. The Lord was on our side because he's a good God and because he loves his people. And so here we are at Psalm 125. We read this and this morning we need to be reminded that if the I am is, then I am not. Good. The bottom line of Psalm 125 is this. Not that we trust in unshakable Zion, but that we trust in the God of unshakable Zion. Israel was very often tempted to think that since God is on our side, nothing can stop us. Because the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. We've got this. Nothing will stop us. And we might be tempted to think that this is about those who trust in the Lord, who are like Mount Zion. It's not. This is about the Lord in whom the trust is being placed. It's not about the trusters. It's about the trusted, the source of that trust. It's about Yahweh, our God, who, yes, is on our side, but also we're on his side. (laughs) And that's really the key. I say this because we read this as a psalm of comfort, and we should. But also it's a psalm of comfort because we are pointed to God. He's the source of the comfort. And so here we look at this psalm, and it makes a pretty bold statement. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Now, just allow me to play devil's advocate for a moment. Seriously? Can't be moved? Abides forever? Because you know the history of Israel. Was, was Israel settled forever? Uh, no. There's this little thing called the exile, where because of Israel's sin, they were taken out of there. This word abides forever. It's the word settled. It's the same word for whenever Israelites were commanded to settle the land of Canaan. But the land was not always settled because of their disobedience. So I guess it wasn't settled forever. I guess it was settled for a time because of Israel's disobedience. They were taken off into exile. So I mean, what do we do? Pack up our bags and go home? God's unfaithful in a story? We can go to breakfast on Sundays instead of church? Or or maybe, just maybe, we read this and we are reminded that yes, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which is unshakable and which cannot be moved. Yes, we affirm that. But we also know that means it's because he's great, not because we've got it. He's good. That's why there's protection. He's a good God who loves us. That's why it's unshakable. It's unshakable because he's unshakable. It's not inherently unshakable. We know Israel's track record. Nothing Israel puts their hand to is completely unshakable. But the God they serve, he is unshakable. He's the key. Do you notice that little phrase in verse 3, the scepter of wickedness? Scepter of wickedness. What's a scepter again? It's that little stick that kings hold, right? They hold the stick to say, look at me, I am in charge, I have the stick. I'm official. It's like in kindergarten, whenever you have the talking stick, everybody else stops talking. It's official. The king carries the scepter of wickedness. Well, if you're a foreign nation like Babylon, to whom Israel was carried off into exile to, that would be the scepter of wickedness. And so Israel uh, is a people who is conquered by Babylon. So 
as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time on and forevermore. Skip to verse 3. The scepter of wickedness is ruling in the land. So it's not settled anymore. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? But he says, the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, so that there's coming a day when he will remove the Babylonians from ruling over Israel or Persia or whichever empire it is now. But it's so that. You see that in the middle of verse 3? So that. For this purpose. This is why we're removing the wicked. Not because I just thought I would, but for a purpose. So that the righteous might not stretch out their hands to do wrong. So that the righteous might not stretch out their hands to do wrong. So that the righteous can be connected to their source of righteousness. So that they're not tempted to do wrong. Tempted to do evil. When there is an evil ruler, I don't have to tell you, it's always more tempting to do wrong. Whether it's a president or a prime minister or a king. When the king is evil, it's easy for you to be evil. And God says, there's coming a day when I will remove that king, that scepter of wickedness. And then the righteous will not be able to stretch out their hands to do wrong. They'll only be able to do good and righteous things. Now, um, follow with me here. Knowing all this stuff about, you know, Babylon, Israel ruling and all this. Who would you assume is the righteous in this verse, this psalm? Israel, right? And who would you assume is the wicked? Basically, anybody that's not Israel. (laughs) Babylon, Persia, Assyria, fill in the blank. Rome, I don't know. Fill in the blank. Not Israel, right? That's awfully bold, isn't it? Well, we are the righteous and they are the wicked. It's awfully bold, but we serve a bold God. Maybe we can say that because we serve a God who is unshakable, who is so righteous that so long as we got our focus on him, so long as we've got that keyed in, it's worked out. Um, notice in verse 4, do good, O Lord, to those who are good, but to those who are upright in their hearts. Does your translation say uptight? <laughs> to those who are uptight in their hearts? Well, if it does, it's wrong. The Hebrew clearly indicates that it is upright and not uptight. Yes. We've known many people who have been uptight in their hearts, which is not what God calls us to do. Because if you're uptight in your heart, you're saying, yes, God is on my side because I've got the right answers. Come to me for the right answers. God is on my side because I'm so righteous and holy. Yes. I have um, never said a curse word in my entire life. Yes. I'm fancy. No, upright in heart. The upright in heart are not judgmental. And the upright in heart are not quick to dismiss others. The upright in heart are not quick to point to themselves. They're quick to point to God. Because had it not been the Lord who was on their side, who only knows what would have happened, they're not the point. He is. In other words, if the I am is, then... Let's try that again. If the I am is, then... I am not. That's right. I read a book in seminary... uh, a few years ago called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Autopsy of a Deceased Church. It was an intriguing little book. It's by this man, Tom Rayner. The whole thing was they conducted some research. I don't remember all the specifics. It's buried somewhere in the many boxes of books I have. They conducted some research from various churches that had died and closed their doors and shut everything down. 
And they, they compiled all the data, and each chapter in the book is basically one of the factors that they felt contributed to the reason that the church closed down and died. And um, you want to know what the number one contributing factor was? It was the one that underlined all the other ones. It was like the first chapter after the introductory stuff. It was the one that they said every single one of these churches had this. Whether they had any of the other stuff, they had this. And if they had the other stuff, it came from this. It was the cancer that under, underlied all the other conditions. People. You want to know what it was? No. Might be tempted to think that. But it's close. It was whenever the church became inward focused instead of outward focused. Whenever they made it about themselves and not about others. Can you believe that? I mean, we've seen this time and again, haven't we? You see churches that rise to great prominence and then basically for the next several decades, they just fade away. And this happens on large and small scales. So for example, you go to a church that's got 300 people. You're like, oh, they got 300 people. Yes, but do you see how over three quarters of the auditorium is empty? You know what that means? It used to be at a thousand. And what often happens is it's because they're focusing on themselves. Now, numbers are not everything. We know that. Growth is more than butts and seats. Of course it is. It has to be. But also, um, I mean, a church that is willing to reach the dying and the sick and the broken, there's a lot of broken people out there. And Jesus loves them all. Churches that often want to go and be with those people are churches that find plenty of recipients. Um, it's interesting. A church that becomes inward focused. I listened to a podcast a while back called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Has anybody heard of this? It was, it was really popular there for a while. It was like one of the top listened to podcasts on Apple Podcasts or something. Uh, it was, it's really interesting. It's the story of this one church Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington. Have you ever heard of Mars Hill Church? Maybe. Um, well, they rose to like huge numbers. Like it was one of the largest churches in the nation at one point. And this guy who was the founding pastor, his name was Mark Driscoll, uh, was the founding pastor. And um, I don't want to revel in Mr. Driscoll's demise. I take no delight that fellow servants of the Lord have tried and failed. I take no delight in that. And I don't want to be one to be like, aha! got it wrong. I don't want to do that. But also like an autopsy of a deceased church, I kind of want to look a little bit and see what happened, right? And um, I, I'm sure there are factors that I'm unaware of. I'm sure there are things that are not included in this podcast. It's, it's like a mini series of journalism and it's pretty good reporting on what happened in the events. But as best I can tell, what it seems like to me from listening to that is the moment at which they reached the point of no return was whenever they became about themselves whenever Driscoll became about himself. He was one of the first pastors to ever put content on uh, iTunes, to like put his sermons on iTunes. He was one of the first ones to do that. That's part of what helped the church grow. And eventually it became about making a good sermon to put on iTunes and not about the people in Seattle, not about the people right then and there. They tell the story of how it's one of those churches that branches into multiple campuses, you know, and they tell the story of how the main campus is very different from the downtown campus because the downtown campus has homeless people and drunks and all sorts of people just wandering into service. And they're just like, that's fine. Jesus loves you. And they're doing a very different ministry than the cutting edge and spiffy suburbs of the main campus. And in fact, they tried to shut down the downtown campus or at least try to make sure we don't continue to do things so unorganized and unruly. 
You know why? It's about the brand. Mars Hill Church. Starbucks. Mars Hill. It's got the branding, right? And it became about the brand. He famously says in this podcast, he says to somebody, well, I can't learn to or submit to anybody who doesn't have a church as big as mine. He says this at one point. Now, there's a lot of things we could pick apart about that statement. But the thing that strikes me is it's a fundamental uh, disorientation. He, he got it wrong from the get-go. It wasn't his church. And any other pastor who he's talking about who has a smaller church than he does, it's not their church either. In fact, I don't even think there's churches. There's only one church. Amen. And Jesus is the head shepherd of that church. It's all about him. It's so easy to get caught up in the little things and make it about us, isn't it? It's so easy to make it about what I want in a church service. Well, I prefer it this way. I think the carpet ought to be red instead of blue. And I'm willing to leave the church over it. Think in your mind for a moment. What's the dumbest thing you've ever heard somebody leaving church over? You don't have to call it out. Let's not embarrass. Let's not, let's not start one of those kind of, you know, gossip sessions. Though we could. I'll share with you the one I heard once. The temperature is too cold in this auditorium. We're going to a different church. The dumbest one I've heard. And I know that some of you are thinking of some real doozies right now. I've talked to many of you. We know the stories. That's a church that has done this instead of this. In short, we got to remember that if the I am is, then I am not. I'm not. Just not. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about the God who is so great that he lived way before me and he will live way after. He's the eternal God. He's the God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God who chose Israel to be his people and chose Abraham out of all those people. He's the God who once Israel got themselves in trouble in Egypt, heard their cries and brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and on into the promised land. He is the God who gave his people chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. Even when they didn't deserve it. And even after they're led off into exile, God can't give up on his people and he brings them back from exile. And if that wasn't enough, he sent us his son, the fullest revelation of himself. It's about him. It's about him. I'm just not that interesting in comparison. As much as I might think I am. There's an image that I found particularly helpful. Uh, I learned it in a, a counseling book somewhere. And it was the idea that there's a magnetized arrow that hovers right about here, just a little above your head. The arrow is magnetized to point at you. And anywhere that arrow points is where all of your attention and all of your listening and all of your focus is. And it's magnetized to come pointing back to us. Which means if we're trying to focus on something else, like, oh, I don't know, love God, love others. If we're trying to focus on that, you know what we got to do with it, right? And it's just a strong magnetized pull. Push it the other way. Point it at somebody else. But you know what that also means is if you aren't careful, and if you start to lose your grip, if you start to let go of it, what's it automatically going to do? Snap back, pointing at me. It's about me. No, it's so not. It is so not. Notice in Acts chapter 1, the passage that we read this morning that Phyllis read for us. Um, notice, 
Jesus is just about to ascend and go into heaven. You know what it means for Jesus to ascend, right? He's going to the throne. The king is sitting on the throne. Session is happening. He is sitting on the throne. Um, And then right before that, the disciples say, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, bless their hearts, bless those disciples' hearts, still not getting it. Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or the place. That's a pretty gentle answer. My answer probably would have had the word idiot in it somewhere, just personally. But then Jesus ascends, and a kingdom far greater than just the kingdom of Israel is established. The kingdom of God, and he's reigning, and he's ruling. Um, I'm sure you can't imagine being in the presence of the risen Lord, about to rise even higher to his throne, and being obsessed with our earthly kingdoms. I'm sure you can't imagine doing that. I'm sure you've never known a church or a person who's obsessed with the earthly kingdom when you're looking full in the face of the kingdom of God. Or can you? I can. Because I have. I have looked in the eyes of Jesus and said, well, but what about my kingdom, Jesus? But what about the stuff that I'm concerned with, Jesus? But what about my life, Jesus? What about my comfort level? What about what I prefer? And Jesus says, oh, it's not for you to know the times or the places that are appointed by the Father. But go to Jerusalem and wait, and you'll be given the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. We will be his witnesses. Um... Even if we can't focus on him, he's going to send us out and then we'll start focusing on, we'll start pointing other people to Jesus because it all centers back to him. In the churches of Christ, we often talk about, um, we often talk about restoring the early church. It's an interesting concept. Um, Funny thing is, if you go back and you try to restore the spirit of the early church, if you look at the early church, they're not doing this. We got it. We did it. Look at us. Be like us. What is the early church doing? This. He came and he's coming again. Look at Jesus. Be like him, not like us. We didn't get it perfect. Neither will you, but point at Jesus. Look at him. The early church did not say, right here. Be like the early church. Early church said, be like Jesus. That's what it's always been about. It wasn't about them. It's never been about the church. It's never been about Israel. It's always been about God, about the I am. Because if the I am is, then... I am not. Again, if the I am is, then... I am not. Yeah, I'm not, and neither are you. Because if the I am is, (laughs) that means I am not. Thanks for listening to the Text and Context podcast. If you're interested in some other great content, then you can go over to my website. It's txtandcontxt.com. It's Text and Context without E's in it. So again, that's txtandcontxt.com. Head on over there and check out a bunch of free resources and plenty of articles about a wide range of topics, as well as book reviews and plenty more. Thank you for listening.